Hello there, I'm Dee Reddy and welcome to Inside Intercom. This week's show is hosted by our own Director of Product Management, Brian Donoghue. Brian chatted to author and product manager Buster Benson, who spoke to him about his book released late last year called Why Are We Yelling? The Art of Productive Disagreement. Buster's had a fascinating career, having studied creative writing, then going on to forge a path as a product leader, working for Patreon, Slack, Twitter, and of course, Amazon. More recently, he circled back to writing to bring us this work which explores how we can turn Discord into a useful tool at work and at home. It's a really interesting discussion about how to embrace the gift of disagreement with your colleagues, when not to apply this practice and some of the key learnings that you can apply to your life and work. So without further ado, let's hear what Buster and Brian had to say. Buster, thanks for joining us. Uh, We are delighted to have you on the show today. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. So you're the author of the recently released book, Why Are We Yelling? The Art of Productive Disagreement. But before we dive into the book itself, give us a bit of background on yourself. How has your career unfolded? Yeah, I have spent the last 22 or so years since graduating college in 98 with a creative writing degree in the tech world. So I I emerged thinking I was going to be a poet or a novelist or something. And then Amazon sort of was just down the street and they were just getting started. The Internet was really exciting. And I joined and never looked back for the most part. But I've always had this tension between the creative and the technol- like the, the sort of the progress of technology and how it can help us be better people. So I was at Amazon. I had my own startup after that for a few years. Then I went to Twitter, then Slack, then Patreon. And now I'm back doing my side projects like 750 Words and Writing. Throughout the entire thing, my, my, my career has really just taken me down a wandering path through engineering, product management, design. Um, the things that really excite me and have con- continuously excited me throughout my career have been like, how do you use technology to make lives better? How do we use the science and the technology and apply it to our practical lives? And, and sort of the art of um, improving our lives is really interesting to me. It sounds like you've lived at that Steve Jobs, whatever the exact quote is that best technology is the intersection of liberal arts and science and liberal arts and whatever it is. (laughs) Yeah. And so did you always have a sense that you'd circle back to writing in some capacity? I I, I don't know if I've had a sense, but it's just been, I've realized in hindsight that that's what I've always been doing. Um, I've done this twice now where, you know, after going through, you know, a lot of fast growth startups and Amazon and my own, I came back and I was like, how do I, I and I opened an, a bar in an art gallery in Seattle and tra- attempting to bring it back to like the community and building to, um, sort of the a scene for people to show up and be themselves. Um, after that proved to be really difficult, I went back into the tech world, uh, joined Twitter and, and Slack. And this is my second time attempting to sort of find out how do I can, how I can, um, return to the creative aspects of my interests um, and less around the like showing up and working really hard in a tech company. So it's, it's I think it's full circle and we might go around again one more, two more times though. Nice. You've got a real yin yang thing going on there with your career. It's pretty cool to see. Yeah. Uh, so let's, let's dive into the book itself now. So you, this book is about the art of productive disagreement. Uh, and what you talk about right at the outset there is that this requires this shift in mindset. So tell us, what is this mindset that we need to shift from? Yeah, so disagreement is something that we're all intimately familiar with. And we, we all know that the way that we react to disagreement isn't always how we want to react to it. But I've 
found that there are a couple common misconceptions that we have, even when we talk about it. One of them is that we treat arguments as bad things, things that should be resolved or shut down or closed. You know, all of our all of our metaphors are around shut, like sort of ending them as quickly as possible. But I think of them as they can either be productive in the sense that they produce something useful over a period of time, or they could be unproductive, which means they sort of like make things worse. Um, and so I like to think of them as neither good nor bad. Another common misconception is that the whole purpose of an argument is to change someone's mind. And, you know, it's a very binary way of thinking about it. But I, I, I prefer to think of there being many fruits of a disagreement. There's a lot of things around, you know, building the relationship, learning about the world, enjoying yourselves, um, and ultimately sometimes alignment as well. But there's a, there's a bouquet of fruit that you can come out of an argument. And the last misconception I see a lot is that they end. You know, a lot of people think of them as these sort of short things that you, you know, find the conclusion and it's resolved and you move on. When if you actually look back and you think about your arguments in your lives with your, you know, with your family, with your coworkers, with yourself, there are recurring patterns that keep on coming up. And even times when you think that they're over, they'll come back up again in a different form if they're not fully done being, you know, sort of figuring out what their purpose is in your life. So. We, if we sort of embrace these things, that arguments can be good, that they're not all about changing minds and that they don't need to end. And I think we could have a different mindset towards it and actually use them as opportunities rather than just obstacles in our way. Yeah, I think one of the phrases you use was like uh, the gift of disagreement. So it's almost lean, yeah. leaning into these things that are maybe we have a natural natural aversion to steer away from as fast as possible. So that, that makes sense. I think that resonated a lot as just a simple point of just changing the, changing the perspective here on, on viewing arguments as a healthy thing, uh, as something to lean into and almost like milk for what's actually there. So mm -hmm. keep, keep going on with this. Like what's the, is there kind of a core thesis or a core insight that you're, you're really trying to get across? Like once we shift our perception to, Hey, these are, potential good things. Uh, these are opportunities. Yeah. Uh, keep going. Where, where is it? Yeah. Where's your thesis yeah, go so from there? If you think of this as the gift of dis disagreement in the same sense that like we have the gift of fire, fire can burn and fire can heal and cook and do all these other useful things. We have to get good at harnessing the power of fire. We need to get good at harnessing the power of disagreement. And that means building this skill. And I think I think of it as a meta skill. So a meta skill is a skill that if you get better at this, it will improve all of your other skills, or at least a large portion of them. And since conversation and disagreement are in almost every single corner of our lives, even a small improvement in your ability to, to foster productive disagreements will improve your relationships, will improve your work situations, will improve your business, will improve your relationship to politics, will improve even how you talk to yourself and um, sort of argue with yourself about going to the gym or eating healthy and those kinds of things. So it's just one skill that can un unlock a lot of other improvement in your life. Buster, how did you become convinced that this book needed to be written? Uh, where did the confidence come from that it would, it would really resonate? Yeah, it really came out of a deep need of my own that I needed to understand this better. I had this, been doing this thing where every time I had a disagreement that went off the rails, I would journal about it. I call this the disagreement journal. And it's something that I talk about in the book too. But the idea is that sort of a retro or a postmortem for our conversations because because oftentimes in the moment you can't operate at your highest capacity you can sort of after the fact sort of think about where did I steer wrong where could I adjust better in the future and so I really needed the answers to this and part of the hunch that I had was that I 
you know, like many of us, we feel like just by speaking to the truth and speaking to our 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 positions that we we can't possibly be arguing incorrectly or poorly. Um, and it turned out that after time after time, doing this thing that I was doing, which a lot of us do, was continuously producing poor results. And so. I had to take that maxim um, that I, you know, I believe, like you know, it's attributed to Einstein, which is like, you know, if you if you continue to do something that doesn't work, um, you're sort of, you know, clinically insane in a, in a sort of a way. So I wanted to, see, to ask myself, like, what are other ways to approach disagreement that might produce better results? And that was the thing that um, opened up the the whole book for me. Disagreement journal. That almost sounds like an exercise in from marital therapy or something like that. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Journaling is 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 an, a great thing for almost every venue of our lives as well. Uh, so, give us more a sense of the of the content there. So, like maybe talk some of the the key lessons you're trying to to share through, like these five guidelines for productive disagreement. Yeah, I after trying to synthesize a lot of the different knowledge and wisdom on this topic from many different um, domains of knowledge. I came up with these five guidelines, which are the first one being use friendly language in a disagreement. There's no, you're not going to actually gain any objective ground by using insulting or, or harmful language. We understand this. Uh, so I, I put that one up front because it's an obvious one, but you know, it's, it's harder to do in practice than, than, than it seems at first. Number two, understand first. So this comes from like the seven habits of highly effective people, which is like, before you try to get someone else to understand you, try to understand what they're saying. And that's, that's what leads into the third question, the third point, which is ask honest, open questions. Ask questions that spark surprising answers, because that's how you begin to understand the other person's perspective is by asking them questions that you don't already have a pre-built judgment about or that aren't the leading questions. So a lot of times user researchers are really good at this because they want to find as much information as possible by asking open questions. And we can use that in our own lives as well. Number four, speak for yourself. It's so easy for us to project onto other people and tell them what they're thinking and tell them what their motivations are. It's oftentimes both insulting and incorrect. And so rather than doing that, speak for yourself. Speak about what you're what you believe, what you care about, and how you are interpreting them, um, and let them speak for themselves as well. And if, if you're not, if you're arguing with someone that's not in the room, it's an opportunity to invite them into the room and ask them directly uh, for their perspective. And the last one being, you know, we think of arguments as these things that these battles that happen between fixed positions that, you know, it's like right and wrong. But oftentimes there's a much more rich landscape to move around in, in a position. And so we need to help each other become better. So oftentimes that means finding that third position that encompasses and feels good for both sides so that you can understand that they're both perspectives are possible to have even though some might be more informed than others we can help each other become better both at you know having better beliefs and better positions but also being better at arguing itself and so like you're talking about like so friendly language understand first instead of basically jumping to persuade actually asking honest open questions you mentioned try to ask something that's uh, surprising it's interesting user researchers are almost gearing towards something that's surprising, but yet in our most of our daily conversations around there, it's almost the reverse. So that's mm -hmm. interesting dynamic to bring in. Speak for yourself. It's funny. Everyone always feels, in user research, people often say, oh, and feel the need to like speak for their entire company or the ent entire mm -hmm. segment almost, and then help each other become better. So are these hard to do? Like when you were trying to do these, is it was this kind of quite a long process to get better at that? Or were you able, is there a, how, how uh, fast or yeah. slow is the learning curve here? 
Yeah, so I think of these as conversational habits, and as many of our habits are, they're automatic. So when we when we talk, oftentimes we're using these programs and these familiar loops of thinking and loops of words that have used been useful in the past. So it's hard in the sense that finding a way to get become aware and become mindful during a conversation is hard. Once you find a way in, and so the book sort of starts with this idea of like sort of watching your anxiety and seeing what sparks it, because that's the doorway into tweaking some of these things and making them work. I found personally that once that was an intentional practice, that it, it was not that hard. It was very easy to catch myself asking leading questions or catch myself speaking for someone else or catch myself, you know, trying to making someone else understand me versus before I understand where they're coming from. And of course, friendly language is, is very easy to spot as well. But the, the hard part is sort of entering a conversation entering a disagreement and then still keeping hold of the wheel in terms of, you know, what kinds of things come out of your mouth. Yeah, that that what you brought up there around the triggers or anxiety sparks, what you call them in the book, that really resonated a lot for me. And I think a lot of my colleagues are probably smirking as they hear me say that. So they've probably seen me have those sparks. But <laughs> I think it's like these these little things that happen that make us much less likely to get into a, a healthy disagreement. Like I here's some examples. I think trying to make this tangible is, is, is when I've tried to reflect back on conversations like, oh, that did not go as well as it should have. Mm -hmm. And I think it's that internal monologue that or, or is it like, oh, you know, I know where you're going this point. Can we speed up here? It, or or it's like, we've discussed this already. Let's not go there mm -hmm. again. Like the, I think those mm -hmm. are some of the things, the triggers that, that uh, for me, get me to a bad state of mind. And then the conversation is likely not to go to a healthy place. Like, are there any mm -hmm. other like s triggers that you've heard people talk about that really they had to work on to almost hit the mute button on? Yeah, I mean, there are so many. We all have our own sort of bag of tricks in terms of how we navigate these this anxiety. Some of us, you know, process out loud, and we have to work out the disagreement with other people. Some of us go to our trusted friends and sort of bounce it around. Some of us re resort to social media to work things out. We all have these sort of self medication things, and so the important thing is to to start noticing them. You know, for me, the thing that I use to sort of catch myself in a disagreement is just merely the the elevation of my like, sort of heart rate and blood pressure. Cause like I I've learned to sort of realize that that's oftentimes a, you know, it might happen a little bit earlier too. It might happen when they say something and then I don't actually leap into the conversation and for another minute or, you know, 10 seconds. And that's enough time to reorient myself and say, okay, wait, this is, this could be really great. We could find, what is the thing I don't know about this conversation that I can learn from instead of just repeating the same thing, because obviously having the same, you know, conversation going in circles is not, is, is not, and rewarding or enjoyable. And so there's a lot of good reason to try to avoid that. I mean, it really seems like it's it's bringing a little bit of Buddhism into the debates, right? It's like, you, I think you mentioned earlier that mindfulness. And, and I think what's interesting is it's just that small window where a little bit of mindfulness can actually really change the the track that conversation goes there. Like that resonates a lot. Just re yeah. recognizing your own physical reaction is is all you need to do to say, oh, be quiet for a minute, <laughs> be quiet for a second Absolutely. here before you, you talk. So that that makes a lot of sense. So let, yeah, yeah. let me try mm -hmm. to bring this into like some themes that w we all talk about and use in the work context. Like, uh, so one of them is alignment, this cheesy word, but every 
everyone knows how critical it is. And we keep talking about it because it's so important alignment or, or another one like disagree and commit. And like what I'm trying to get a sense of is like, do you think this constant search for getting alignment, does that often actually unintentionally shut down like productive disagreement? Or are they in, yeah. in a bit of conflict in a way that desire for alignment is? Yeah, yeah. This is a fantastic sort of lens to, to look through at disagreement through because there's we use alignment in two different ways. One of them is, you know, you're truly aligned, like your hearts and minds are sort of aligned in the same direction. And you need this for a vision to take hold and to work together. Um, you need to ha- care about the same core values. But we also use it to represent basically a contract or a concession. And when we oftentimes in an argument, we're trying to get the other person to admit that they're wrong, which is a way to get them, get the concession, get the surrender flagged waved, but it's not going to get their hearts aligned with yours. And so if we truly wanted alignment, we would approach it from a more holistic sense of like, how do I get your heart on the same page as mine versus how do I get you to agree to just do what I said? Um, and that can oftentimes work in the short term and then over the long term create cultural debt, right? Or resentment. And then disagree and commit is the same way. Like you can use this for good or for bad. I think there's a lot of possibility for using this for good in the terms of like, let's take everything we believe and everything we know. And even though we don't see things the same way. Let's tell both stories and sort of predict what's going to happen and then choose one of the paths, see what happens and compare notes afterwards and have that accountability to return to it. And say, like, okay, well, we did this. Now let's see how it worked. And in the meantime, I'm just going to be committed to it uh, because I mean, obviously I want the best version of that thing to happen. But so they're, they're, they can be used for both good and evil. And but I do think there's a lot of potential for good. And, and maybe it's just like the precursor to either of those often requires the, at least the opportunity for productive disagreement. And if you don't allow the space for that, the disagree and commit, which is also, you know, an alignment are unlikely to genuinely be there. I mean, is that kind of the way you're thinking about yeah. it? Yeah, we can't just take the someone's word and say like, okay, I, I'm going to do this. If you feel like they're going to they're still like holding back something, especially when there's a power dynamic. There's a lot of incentives to just, okay, shut your mouth and do the work, even though you think it's going to fail. It's not going to turn into the best work. So you have to dig a little deeper in those situations and find out like, okay, well, what is it that you still feel unsettled about? How can we bring that to the surface, make a prediction around how that will apply to the future and then see if it happens and and, uh, move from there. At least they could feel heard at the same time as they commit. And and how about that? I guess it's not a tactic, but technique of like, hey, let's play devil's advocate here. Is that something that you think is a healthy approach is compatible with it? Or is that actually kind of anti-pattern or where, where do you think that fits into this? Yeah, I have a, a, a tip around this game called the monkey's paw, which is basically devil's advocate of let's all put our proposals on the table and then just tear them apart and use, you know, use like the, the genie in the lamp sort of to like, how can I make this proposal turn out into have fail in the most unexpected ways um, as a way to surface all of the potential um, negative sides that oftentimes feel like criticisms, but in a conversation that is safer, um, they could feel like, OK, well, this is just potential ways that this can unfold and it's not as threatening. So if you're using devil's advocate not to like threaten the person's position, but to reveal blind spots, then it's good. But I think there's a little bit of context that needs to be set first, which is like, okay, you know, and even just saying, let's let's play devil advocate here is sometimes enough. But if it's really just being used to bash on someone's ideas, it could be harmful. So again, it's 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 about the 
are you both on board with this with bringing criticism to the table? If you are, then it's going to be great. Yeah. So maybe it's a bit of the intent behind it matters most. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode one is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt-or-die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service, and it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right, and see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. Another related concept that we've talked a lot about in here, and actually Emmett, our design director, wrote a blog post about it, is healthy tension. Particularly like thinking of engineer, design, PM, is like is you almost want to create an environment where people are optimizing for different things to force mm-hmm. the tension between those things, to force the conversation around, hey, what's the right trade-off there? Like, do you think that's in the same ballpark here? You know, productive disagreement is what you're hoping for from healthy tension? Or Yes, I- yes, absolutely. Um, healthy tension, I think of disagreement as the way that we sharpen each other, right? So productive disagreement can sharpen us and make us smarter as a group. Uh, um, but you need that tension. You need the friction of different perspectives. You need the the different worldviews, the different ideas to be in tension because that's how you identify each other's blind spots. That's how you end up iterating and improving over time. And, you know, oftentimes people want to remove that tension and that actually removes all opportunity for growth for the team as well. So you definitely have to have the tension. So uh, speaking of tension, one thing in companies that you've worked in and that we worked in and a bunch of people work in is this need, this need for speed. Uh, I think uh, going back Mm -hmm. to Top Gun there, some movie there. But right, (laughs) there's there's a deliberate pressure that we put on ourselves like, hey, we need to continually be making progress and make it as efficiently as we can. Uh, You know, one of the core things, particularly for PMs, is ensuring people were making decisions. You know, give the space for it, make a decision, move forward. All that. That, all that sort of momentum that you're trying to build on a team, how much of this is actually the cause of our inability to have productive disagreement because you're trying to drive forward? Like, do you see a real cause mm-hmm. and effect here and or not? Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a, a mistake we often make where we are in a disagreement and we try to reduce it down to data. Um, So I I have this framework where I have the realms of the head, the heart, and the hands. The head is where the information and the data can resolve the the, the disagreement. Um, And we oftentimes try to force 
all of our disagreements into this realm where if we just look up the data or do an experiment, then it'll find the answer. I think that's the wrong path, though. Rather than taking something that's about, you know, how should we prioritize this? Should we do this or should we not do that? Which is definitely the realm of the heart, you know, subjective values, beliefs, uh, preferences, risk tolerance, all that stuff. And, and collapsing it down into something that can be solved with, with information, solve it with, you know, a process or a prediction or something that will move you forward and make you smarter as a result of testing it. So in this case, you know, if you're trying to guess whether or not something is more productive or better or worse for the company, just collect predictions about what's going to happen, pick one and then learn from it. And this speeds us up because if you just stick with the, and like, is this a real problem? Is this important? And you're just arguing, going around the table, like arguing about whether or not it's important, you're not going to ever learn anything. You'll only learn something by saying, let's take what we believe is important and test it and see what happens. And then we can all agree to sort of learn from what happens and continue to improve. And we don't have to talk about the values as much. And this works really well in large groups where Obviously, you're never going to hear from every single person in the room or every single person in the company, but you can collect their their thoughts in the forms of predictions and move forward and continue to iterate. Gotcha. Okay. So you you mentioned towards the start talking about this productive disagreement as a meta skill. And I think in the in the book, you say, actually, you prefer to think of it as a superpower. And I think it, as you're talking about, part of the reason is because this skill has such broad applicability, right? And it, it feels like there's, I don't know if it's actually a trend or it's just something that I've noticed in the books I'm reading more recently, where it's like this blurring of work skills and life skills. Mm-hmm. And, and particularly if you look at your book, like when I thought back, it was like, actually, most of the examples in your book are, are not work examples. They're mm-hmm. they're outside of that space there. So I'm curious to, to get your perspective on this. Like, do you, do you really see this as a very fluid space between work skills and, and life skills? or and, and where was your orientation in writing this book and thinking of, of framing uh, where it's most valuable? Yeah, I, I do think that they're, they're fluid um, because the thing at the heart of both work and life is that we're having conversations with people, having conversations with people about things we care about. In relationships, we're talking about, you know, the family and the relationship and sort of how to how to you know raise children and how to like, you know, make our lives fulfilling. At work, we're talking with other people about how to be impactful, how to like, you know, move fast, how to have good outcomes, how to and so how to work together. But both of them are operated through conversations. You know, we might go to work, but these days, like we have so many meetings, we have so many emails, so many Slack channels, and that's the venue where these problems need to be addressed. And that you can't just start, you know, download a new app or use a new product and get better at disagreement. You have to think about the people. It's always about the people. And to the extent that work and life, you know, and, you know, everything we do involves working with other people, these skills can apply. And oftentimes it's the same problems that you run into in both, in all, in all domains. Uh, although we've had we've had some chats, I think this was back in London uh, after work, some beers and, and folks were talking about the risks, though, of this sometimes. And someone said, yeah, one time uh, his wife said, hey, don't put your manager skills to work on me. And he's like, oh, oh that was a little too, yeah. you know, and it's like <laughs> bringing that stuff that you've learned and trying. And and someone else was talking about bringing radical candor to conversations at home. It's like, well, you know, definitely treading on risky ground that you can kind of do with viewing things so fluidly right. between these skills. But like, saying that where I come from the perspective of like actually having more of a disconnect and like, oh, think about stuff at work and then think about stuff at home. But it, it, it really feels like this 
productive disagreement skill, this this superpower here really has, it really does have that broad utility, but hopefully can do it in a way where no one calls you out and saying, hey, did you just read a workbook and try that on me? But um, absolutely. Yeah. If you bring the lingo from one domain into the other, you're, it's, it's not as respectful, right? You don't want to treat your wife as your, you know, direct reporter or something. So yeah. you have to first build that relationship and build the shared language between you to talk about things. And it's sort of, it's a more fundamental level than just applying these, these practices. It's about using conversation itself to build the connection, to build the, the, the opportunity for insight and don't need to bring in the lingo as well. Cause that, yeah, that could be really annoying. It, it, it's funny. That reminds me of someone was saying, oh yeah, they, they moved to another city and they're meeting up with someone they hadn't seen in a while. And, and the friend said, yeah, we, we really should do these meetups quarterly. And she's like, no, no, no we, <laughs> we don't call quarterly here. You got no, you know, that's the wrong. So I think exactly yeah. <laughs> it's, it's the skills, not the language. It can make everything go pear-shaped there. Absolutely. So let's, uh, as we're wrapping up here, let's like z- zoom out a bit here and, and and move away from book and even just here, like w- where is it you've worked in all these really interesting companies, try to take big steps away from that and get a whole different perspective, whether it's writing or or what was open, was a museum and a cafe? Some gallery, yeah, gallery. gallery. Got, well, you, you weren't ambitious there, were you? You should have gone for the <laughs> museum. Jeez, come on. Uh, know, but come on. T- like, where is your inspiration coming from? As you, where, where are your fruitful sources of insight yeah um this might sound like pandering but podcasts have been such a a treasure trove of information recently and i i really respect so many podcast hosts in particular that are taking these long formats and really opening up the conversation around things that would never fit into radio or tv or blog posts or tweets and those kind of things this is like one medium where you can actually talk at length about things and i love it so people that i oftentimes return to are you know krista tippett is one of my favorites Uh, she does on being podcast john verveke is an amazing um professor who did a 50 episode series on youtube about sort of like the meaning crisis and Julia Galef is another one who comes to mind who's like just really time and again, like bringing really hard conversations into the table and having them out with with people on her podcast. And David Fuller is another one that is like is, does rebel wisdom um, that is bringing lots of different perspectives. So anyone that is taking multiple perspectives and giving them a chance to be heard and sort of giving them the benefit of the doubt and sort of teasing apart their perspectives, all those people are just doing really great work. And I'm really like proud that we have this in our, in our culture. Yeah, that's interesting. Like the, the wealth that's out there, the, all these gold mines of, uh, you can just kind of pick your area and go deep in and dabble in it and then come back out. And uh, yeah. it's fun. It's funny. I wonder how many of us at the, how long ago when was it when podcasts started? Like, I don't, I certainly don't think I thought, geez, these things are going to explode. Uh, right. I don't, was it obvious to you at the outset that this would be the place you'd be your go-to source? No, I mean, I don't listen to the radio. So I did, it didn't, I didn't have any idea that it was going to happen. I remember when Ev Williams left um, Twitter and he started Odeo, or actually, no, Odeo happened before Twitter. Um, he's like, yeah, you know, I think that's when podcast, the name sort of was coined. And we were like, what? Who has time to listen to things yeah. on their headphones? Like, what about working and stuff? But yeah, so it took me by surprise. But I think the mixture of like, there's so much in a voice that can be that could be conveyed. Um, and the fact that it's long format and, you know, you can subscribe to them. Yeah, it's in, in hindsight. Yeah makes a lot of sense. But if, if anyone had tried to build a business for it off the bat, it probably would have been hard to, to convince people. Yeah. Well, so in the, in the spirit of not doing a self-indulgent podcast that goes on too long, let's wrap up there <laughs> and just uh, tell us uh, where can our audience keep up with your work? 
Yeah, so my website is BusterBenson.com. That's where my book is and, you know, all, all the other projects I work on. Twitter, I'm at Buster, Buster Benson on LinkedIn. So you can basically find me anywhere on the Internet um, that way. Great. We'll share those details on the blog. Thanks again for joining us, Buster. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. We hope you enjoyed our chat with Buster. We'll be back next week with another episode of Inside Intercom, where we'll feature our co-founder and CTO, Kieran Lee, in conversation with Fergal Reed, our principal machine learning engineer. You don't want to miss this. So be sure to subscribe now on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. And if you've already subscribed, why not give us a rating? It really helps to spread the word. This is Inside Intercom. 